a difficulty often not faced by topical preachers who can avoid bits of Scripture they don't want to hit. The problem is we have to hit the difficult passages when they come up. If I was to simply skip a section of the Bible, uh, I'm pretty sure most of you would ask questions. Uh, And I failed to add this next bit to Steve's sermon last week, uh, and so here we are this morning. So what we're going to be doing this morning is getting stuck into the sovereignty of God. His, oh, there you go, there's a woo, His sovereign and righteous reign over all things. And all things means all things, including our salvation. Now, before we begin, if you have a problem with this this morning, take it up with the Lord because it's His Word. So send your emails to God, put your angry emojis on the Facebook page, on His Facebook page, Um, do whatever you do, because it's God's Word, not mine, all right? So just want to make that clear. Now, our context is that Jesus has been talking to the crowds about the true cost of discipleship, that following Jesus means dying to self. That following Jesus means being children of light as opposed to children of darkness. Now, this is the turning point in the Gospel of John. Up until now, his ministry has been public, and this is his final public address in the Gospel of John. And from this point on, it's very much just Jesus talking to his disciples. For mine, it's kind of like we're in the Passion Week Time is about to come to an end for Jesus' earthly ministry. It's almost like cramming. He's got the disciples for a limited amount of time, and it's intense discipleship and teaching for them until the cross. So that's where we're up to in our journey. Let's read John 12, and we'll just read 37 to 41, if you have your Bible there. John 12, 37 to to 41. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eye and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Amen. The beginning of our passage this morning. So, quick aside... Does anyone remember what the purpose of John's gospel is? What did John tell us? John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. But these are written. What's John referring to there? What is written? Well, before that verse, that key verse that tells us the Gospel of John is written that we would believe in Jesus, John records that Jesus did many other signs. 
He says intentionally that I picked out these particular signs so that you would have the evidence, you would have the proof to anchor your faith upon and trust in Jesus. So these things, these are the ones I've taken that you would have hard evidence and proof of the signs of Jesus to anchor your faith upon. And for many of us here, we've done just that, amen? We've read about Jesus, we've read about the miracles, we've looked at the signs, we've, we've heard what he did in the Gospel of John, and we have put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about those who actually got to witness those things firsthand, though? Wouldn't that have been amazing? Have you ever thought to have actually walked around in the time of Jesus? Has anyone, maybe when they were younger and we still had dreams, um, that you were like, if time travel was possible, how cool to have been around in the time of Jesus, to actually have seen a man crippled for life stand up and walk, or a man born blind see, or even more amazingly, a man who had been dead for four days raised to life. And how incredible. There's still a saying to this day that people often talk about, I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. Well, what about all the people here who saw it with their own eyes and still did not trust Jesus? What do we do with that? What about all the people today who hear the gospel, who see lives transformed, but do not believe? Now, John thought it was weird. He thought the signs were so strong that people must believe what they had seen, and that's why he says, I've included these so that you would believe. And yet they don't. Why? Well, According to our passage, what John says is, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, or I would heal them. God has blinded their eyes, God has uh, blinded their hearts, hardened their hearts so that they would not see and turn to God. Now, this is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, when, if you know the story, Isaiah is brought into the holy presence of God, and after he says, God says, who will go, who will be my messenger? And Isaiah says, I will go, after he's been purified by the coal, if you remember that story in Isaiah 6. And after he says, I will go and be the messenger, God says, that's great, Isaiah, but they won't believe. How's that for a, a good start to your ministry? Yeah, I'll go, Lord. Good. They won't believe you. But God says, why won't they believe you? Because I have hardened their hearts. I've closed their eyes so they cannot believe you. Now, some of you are going, oh, gee, not too sure about this this morning, Sam, but maybe that's a one-off. Maybe that's just one little bit of the Scripture here. It was a, a very specific situation. Well, that's simply not the case. If you have your Bible there, let's open up to Romans 9, and we're going to read 14 to 23. So if you have your Bible there, Romans 9, 14 to 23, the word of the Lord. Listen carefully to what this is saying. These are not my words. This is the Bible. I want you to really pay attention, okay? Zero in like you're studying for, for an exam. 
Romans 9, 14 to 23. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? The Word of God. What is this passage saying? Quite clearly, God will show mercy and compassion to whom he chooses, and he will harden others. So the response which Paul writes for us in the passage, which many of you probably feel right now is, that's not fair. How can it be someone's fault? And the answer given to the passage is, who are you to talk back to God? Cannot God decide to do what he wants with the clay that he made? Can he not use for some for honour and some for dishonour? What if God displays his righteous glory in power, in grace, but not just grace, also in judgment, is what the passage says. The word of God. God decides for his will and glory, and signs and wonders will not change the will of God. Now, a few quick points as we wrestle this through. One, God's sovereignty in these matters is not pitted against human responsibility. Each and every person who has ever lived and ever will live has willfully rejected God. Every person falls short of the glory of God. Everyone has rejected God. Second, God's hardening is not presented as a bored manipulation of of a flaky God cursing morally neutral people. But it's viewed as the holy justice of God against guilty people. We have to understand that. All people are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, God's judgment is just. Thirdly, God's sovereignty in these matters is a view is also a cause for hope. If God is truly sovereign in salvation, then it makes sense for him for me to pray to him to save people. If we believe that only people can choose God and God shouldn't interfere in their decision, then why pray? If you don't believe God can intervene in someone's salvation, then why would you pray? You're asking God to do the thing you say he can't do. 
right? But if you believe God alone is responsible for salvation, then petition him to save, right? So it gives cause for hope. Fourthly, God's sovereign hardening of the people in Isaiah's day also was used as a means to bring about the salvation of others. It was a part of God's redemptive purpose. And Paul argues the same thing in Romans 9. God uses his judgment as a means to display his glory and save others. Can I tell you, church, this is an incredibly clear biblical teaching that's very easy to understand but very hard to accept. That's the reality. Very easy to understand but very hard to accept. If I talk to most people about this, they will say, but people have to have the right to choose. Really? Why? God made us, we are his possession. We don't have any rights before God. We are people who deserve death and simply petition God for mercy. And he displays mercy where he will. If there's an inmate on death row and they've gone through all the appeals and they've exhausted them and the day of death has been sentenced, what rights do they have at that point? None. The appeals are exhausted. They can only go so far. That's exactly your state until you put your faith in Jesus. You are sentenced to death. You have no right of appeal before a holy judge because you are guilty of sin, everyone is. You have no hope but a stay of execution from the one in charge. So if God is sovereign in salvation, if he decides who is saved and who is not, why do we share the good news? Well, two big reasons. Firstly, because he tells us to. I don't get to question God. He is my Lord and King. I'm simply his servant. So God says, go into all the world proclaiming the good news. What is my job as a faithful servant? Go into all the world proclaiming the good news, right? So he tells us to. We're under orders from our King to proclaim the good news. Secondly, God saves through the proclamation of the good news. When we share the good news, people respond by the will of God. And so we get to be a part of that. When we share the good news, God calls through the gospel. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? And this is what Paul believed, and it empowered his ministry. I'm going to share you another verse. If you're tracking along with what I'm saying here, and you're not already so angry at me, you're about to throw your Bible at me. But anyway, Acts 13, 47 to 48, if you're following along, now, we could do scriptures on this all day, uh, but most of you probably aren't keen for that. But anyway, Acts 13, 47 to 48. Context. Paul is preaching to a crowd of people, Gentiles specifically, non-Jews. And he tells the Gentiles the gospel, and he tells the Gentiles that they can be saved. Hallelujah. If you're not a Jew here this morning, hallelujah, because you can be saved, Right? Uh, so that is the context. Paul is in a situation like this, but it's a market square, but there's people in front of him, and he proclaims the good news. And Paul's sitting there saying, right, you're the Lord's and you're... No, he's not. He's just preaching to the crowd. And then hear what we read. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. All who had been appointed believed. Note the tense in the order. Paul preaches to the crowd, those who are appointed by God, then believed. Right? God is sovereign in salvation. Those chosen before the foundation of the world believe. Paul, he preaches the gospel. That's our job. That's your job. That's my job. And we leave it over to God, who has freely in his grace chosen what to do with the clay that he made. Final verse. Didn't tell Wayne about this, but he shared it already. Why does this even matter? Why do we even want to talk about this? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what Wayne shared earlier, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You don't actually bring the faith. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Why does this matter? Because it gives God the maximum glory. Right? That's why it matters. If I don't even bring the faith to believe, if even that is a gift from God, what can I possibly put on the table to say is of me? Nothing. I can't even say my belief. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. I have one boast in all of my life. I have one boast. And his name is Jesus. And he did everything for my salvation. And I did nothing. That is why it matters. He gets the glory. Amen? All right, we're going to leave that now and move along in our passage. I'm more than happy to answer questions, talk to you more about this. Like I said, start though with wrestling with the Word of God. Right? You've heard the passages, you've heard what they say, start there. And then we can talk about it more later. All right, moving on from our passage, John 12, 42 to 43, the same passage we're in in context. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Among these crowds that had seen the signs were those who believed, even among the rulers, but they would not confess that they believed in Jesus. Why? Because they'd be put out of the synagogue, they'd lose their positions of power and influence, they would lose some friends. Or as John puts it, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. This has been a constant theme throughout John, a belief that doesn't save. You know, I shared ages ago from James where it says, even the devil believes in God, right? The devil believes in Jesus. He knows the truth, but is he saved? No, belief doesn't save you. No, dying to this life and being brought to new life in Christ is what saves you. 
Right? So these guys believe, they intellectually accept the truth, but they have not died to the love of the world. And this is a constant message throughout John. Very similarly, John 5.44 says this, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from God? You want the glory that you give to one another, but you don't seek the glory of God above the glory of man. Therefore, you will not be saved. Again, the Bible tells us, if you love the world, you cannot love Jesus. If you fear man more than God, then you cannot love Jesus. To love Jesus means to forsake worldliness. And these men simply weren't willing to do that. It's sad, but it happens incredibly often today. Always brought about one cultural pressure or another. You cave and alter the Word of God to accommodate pressure from the world, just like these guys were doing cave about morality because the world changes its view of morality and now says the Bible's outdated and wrong and so people preach a different word. Cave about whatever worldly pressures that come. Cave about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. A little while back I heard someone left this church and the reason they left was because the word that's preached here is too convicting. Do you know how incredibly sad that is? Boy, we all need convicting, don't we? Because the other truth of this is the world is constantly pulling on all of our affections. It's constantly tempting all of us in so many ways to just cave a bit, to not speak up at work when I should, to not speak up to my friend when they're blaspheming the name of Jesus, to corrupt the morals I believe. It's pulling at us all the time. But those who are truly is know we stand on the Word of God regardless of what the world says because we've died to the world and we have life in Christ. But boy, we need His Word to keep us strong, to keep challenging us and convicting us. Think of that great song, I can't remember the name of it. Steve might help me out here in a second, but part of it is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What song is that one? Come Thou Fount. Do you know the guy who wrote that song wandered away from his faith two years after writing it? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And he did. Some people have said to me, then we shouldn't sing that song. And I'm like, yeah, we should. What an extra little bit of depth to the song. When you sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Feel it. Because we're all prone. We're all prone. So we come back to the true word of God that we don't alter, change in any shape or form. We stick to the word of the Lord. And John now brings Jesus' public ministry to a close using a statement from Jesus which includes many of the themes covered in the Gospel of John. So very quickly, this is the end of our passage this morning, and it's a great summary, really, of the public teaching of Jesus. And I, I think this is why John's put it in here. So this is John 12, 44 to 50. John 12, 44 to 50. Jesus cried out, 
The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Right, beautiful end to the public ministry of Jesus. So let me summarize that in four very quick points. Verses 44 to 45 says, If you believe in, put your faith in Jesus, then you are also believing in and putting your faith in the Father. This is a huge theme throughout the Gospel of John. And John summarizes it publicly here again right now. Remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen The Father. We've talked about this, but you say to people sometimes, what's Jesus like? And they will give you a list that's hours long because they're they're like, I read about Jesus all the time. You say, what's the Father like? And they're like, just not as sure. Just describe Jesus, right? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Their character is the same. One in essence, three in person, the triune God, right? So Jesus says, clearly, everything I've said, everything I taught, everything I do is commanded by the Father. When you put your trust in the Son, you are equally putting your trust in the Father. And how amazing and awesome is that? You are just as connected to the Father as you are the Son. When you put your faith in the Son, you are also putting your faith in the Father. That's why all those different cults and things out there that reduce Jesus from God to a lesser little g God or a prophet or something can never be saved because they cannot say if you've seen me you've seen the father right they've reduced Jesus to something less than God and it does not end in salvation that's verses 44 and 45 end of Jesus public ministry You've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Verse 46, Jesus is the revelation of God, and that is why he is the light. After the fall, sin and darkness entered the world, but Jesus has come as the light of the world, the revelation of God which reveals God to men. And men will either put their faith in Jesus, the light of the truth of God, or because they love sin, will continue to dwell in the darkness. This is the the message of John right throughout. Come into the light. But to come into the light of God means first, when you first step into that light, your sin is exposed. It's the first step in becoming a Christian. When you first step into the holy presence of God, your sin is exposed. God shows you who you really are, and it's not pleasant. I remember sobbing my eyes out. You've got to step into the light to experience the holiness of God and his salvation. And as the word says throughout John, men love their sin and they love the darkness. So rather than come to the light and be exposed, they dwell in the darkness. And they reject the light. You can 
Put your faith in Christ, in his light. Be free from sin and dwell with him eternally. Or you will have eternal darkness and damnation. That is the consistent message of John. Thirdly, verses 47 and 48. Jesus came to save, not to judge. His call, his purpose is to bring many to salvation. But what about those who hear his words and reject them? Those who see the light might even believe but are not saved. This is a major theme of the Gospel of John. And there's those who outright don't believe. Well, Jesus says, I don't need to judge them. His words, the Word of God will judge them. Jesus says, every word I spoke was from the Father, so he's recycling that. But then on that great and terrible day when we all face judgment, Jesus says, the words of truth that I proclaimed that you could come to me for salvation and you didn't, those words will judge you. The offer of salvation was there and yet you love the darkness. So on that day, everyone will be held against the word of God and those who have not trusted Jesus will go to hell. That's the reality that Jesus is saying. I've come to save many, but the word of God will judge them on that day because they rejected their only hope of salvation. Fourthly, final point, verses 49 and 50. We circle back to point one and round this out. The reason the words of Christ will judge those who reject them is that they are the words of the Father. Everything Jesus says is by the command of the Father. Jesus is the Word made flesh. To reject His words is to reject truth and die in deceit. And what is the command of the Father? What are the words that Jesus has been speaking? The words of eternal life. That's how He closes out His public ministry. If you reject the words of eternal life, which have come through the Father, mediated by the Son, if you reject them, there is no hope of salvation. That's the closing words of his public ministry. Great words they are, aren't they? Jesus, our only hope for salvation. This close to Christ's public ministry is a clear call to the fact that the salvation, our salvation lies in the death of re- and resurrection of Jesus. To reject his offer of salvation is to reject the Father and all that's left for you is a fearful expectation of judgment. Now is the time. All of our days are numbered, but you don't know the number. Now is the time to put your faith in the salvation which only Christ can bring. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our salvation depends on the death and resurrection of Jesus and nothing that we've done or do. Oh, Lord, amazing grace. Lord, I simply pray and ask for everyone here that they would put their trust in you for life. Because, Lord, to reject your gospel truth is to reject the only hope of being saved from the coming judgment. Lord, we simply pray that we would be faithful to proclaiming the good news until you come. Lord, we pray this in and through the name of Jesus. Amen.